Tahoraki Gulf Marine Park ko te pātaka kai o Tikapa Moana, te Moana Nui Atoi, is 1.2 million hectares in size with more than 40 pest-free islands and six marine reserves. This seascape lies on the east coast of the Tāmaki Makoto and Waikato regions, stretching down to the eastern coastline of the Coromandel Peninsula to Waihi. Kia ora, I'm Kiane Matatasipu, the host of Hauraki Gulf Kōrero, a podcast established by the Hauraki Gulf Forum. Here you will be introduced to Kaitiaki of Te Moana Nui Atoi, Te Kapa Moana, to discuss the state of the Gulf, and explore the many ways in which these groups and individuals are taking action to achieve a healthy, thriving marine environment. Kia ora and welcome back to another episode of Hauraki Gulf Kōrero. Today in the whare we have the very beautiful Donna and Moana, Donna Tamariki and Moana Tamariki Pohe, uh, who are twin sisters that have a very beautiful, strong whakapapa connection to the Waitemata, to Okahu Bay, uh, and actually to the two Moana on both coasts of Tāmaki Makaurau. Um, I will let them introduce themselves because they have such beautiful stories uh, around their upbringing in these areas and around the really important mahi that they have been doing throughout their lifetime uh, to protect and enhance the moana. So seeing as we're talking about the moana, I think we'll start with moana. Kia ora kiane, ko moana tamariki pohitoku ingoa. Uh, no Ngāti Whātua ki o rākei me Waiohua, one foot in the Waitemata and one in the Manuko, and from everywhere in between. Kia ora. Kia ora Kiane, uh, ko Donna Tamariki tōku ingoa, no Ngāti Whātua o rākei me Waiohua, um, ko te Waitemata me te Manuko, oku mōna. Um, this is the um, second podcast that I've recorded with you both, different kaupapa, However, same kōrero, in essence, around your connection with the Waitemata. And I wanted to ask you if you could please share with me the stories that you have of the Waitemata and your upbringing in this area. And I guess for us, it it helps to show why this area is so important to you. One of my earliest memories, and I think we would have been about maybe pre-three, because our our middle sister um, wasn't yet born then, was mum and dad um, with us both at Okahu Bay. And it said that we swam before we walked. So we didn't want to stand on the sand or on the grass, but as soon as we were in the water, we were were really comfortable. So it's always been a place that that I'm drawn back to, Um, no doubt Donna as well. Um, and even when we moved to Mangere, um, if Dad wouldn't take us back to Orake to visit our grandmother, we would walk from Mangere to uh, to Orake and to Okahu. Um, so it's kind of like um, that magnet that we're always attracted back to. And I know your father had a huge influence in that. Um, your father, Papa Meiti, Tamaiti Tamariki, he was... Uh, avid uh, moana goer, I should say, because I don't want to label him as just a fisherman or just a navigator. He was so many things and had so many connections to the moana, but that's something that's been in your whakapapa for a long time. Can you share with us a little bit about 
um, those in your whānau who have had connection and, and what their strongest connections have been? Yeah, so I think uh, our relationship to Ōkahu is very much through through our nan, um, but our relationship to the moana in general probably goes back to our, our grandfather's side. So my research when I was doing my master's um, had me discover that we have had... Um, you know, I think it's something like 25 generations of active, you know, participants in the area of waka. Um, that that goes back to our to our Rarotomatahiti side, um, and Dad. You know, first our our first lesson, I suppose, in the ocean was him literally throwing us off the wharf at at Okahu. Um, that was to test whether mum's swimming lessons were um, were worth it. Um, and were they? <laughs> well, I swam, but mum did it. And dad always related to, to the moana as his playground, but not as something to not take seriously as well. Um, so we had the best of both worlds. We understood how valuable it was for us, but also how how much joy and pleasure it could bring mm. for us. Can you share with me a little bit about what each of you do in and around the moana today? Because we have your connection through Orake Water Sports, and I'd really love it if you could uh, share with us how each of you connect to Orake Water Sports. But then there's also mahi around conservation. If you were to briefly, because we'll get into it into a bit more detail, but if you were to briefly explain what it is that you do today in and around Te Waitemata or Kahu Bay. Um, unofficially, always, it's just been really driven by passion on what else um, I can do to support those that are um, working in that area. Um so the Hauraki Golf Marine Park and through the Hauraki Golf Forum, I've had the real pleasure to um, meet so many people doing amazing stuff in that space. So whether, wherever I can offer my support, I do. Um, and the Okahu project that Donna and I worked on um, was an opportunity to, I suppose, be more hands-on um, and integral in... Um, the furthering of revitalising and improving the Modi at Okahu. Um, and I have the pleasure now of working with my Fano um, on the Oruarangiawa project. So, you know, both both Moana are connected through our whakapapa. Um, and we always say if you've got one hand in the water over here and one hand in the Waitemata, you're connected. Um, so having that relationship with uh, with Y is, um, I suppose, in in our blood mm-hmm. that runs through our veins. And I want to acknowledge that you um, have been a member of the Hauraki Golf uh, Forum. And had, how long were you on the forum? I was um, involved with the forum for about 10 years. I started off as a technical officer for Rangimaria Rawiri um, and then uh, succession planning, I suppose, ended up as a member 
And when I resigned last year in May, I was the um, acting chair at the time. Mm. And what about you, Donna? What What is it that you are most active in at the moment around the moana? Uh, so Orake Water Sports. Um, but Orake Water Sports is a vehicle to, um, I guess, educate people or invite people into the space of the Waitemata. Uh, so that they can they can learn more about what's happening, you know, in our harbour and on the water and in the water and uh, in a way that has them enjoy it but also understand the role that they can play too in taking care of the moana. So Orake Water Sports is, is, a, is a club in essence, but that's only a small part of what we do. The kaupapa is is actually way more important than competing. Mm. Well, f- for me it is anyway. And every time we can bring people into a waka and onto the water, it gives them a sense of what it is that's important and how they can contribute. And I know through Orake Water Sports, you have both also... Um, help to facilitate and, and teach wānanga around water safety and uh, skippers licensing and, and all of those sorts of things. And so the contribution that you've made to enable and support more kaitiaki mm-hmm. of the moana is quite huge. You've both had experience in the water, on the water, under the water, eating things from the water. <laughs> I want to ask you, what in your opinion is the state of the Hauraki Gulf right now? It's in dire need of our afi. Mm. You know, um, it's not always visible from the surface what's going on under the surface. And then, you know, so few people put their their faces under the water that um, it could be easily um, overlooked. And... More people need to put their faces under under the water to see what is um, severely lacking at present, and that's a lot of um, vibrancy. Um, the health under the water is not is not good, and it needs our attention. You just have to excuse the motorbike noises in the background if you can hear them. We're in a community where there's lots of motorbikes at the moment. <laughs> what about you, Donna? Um. Yeah, I agree with what what Moana said that, you know, often people see what they want to see and they they ignore what they don't want to see. All kahu since the removal of the moorings, we have, you know, we've seen dolphins in our bay and we've seen more fish jumping and orca um, orca in the bay and stingrays and a seal out on one of the... Um, you know, the, the shipping markers. Um, but we should be seeing a lot more. It should be, we shouldn't be wowed by it, mm. you know. I want to talk to you both about the moorings because it's quite significant. Um, together with uh, other people who supported um, your submission to the Unitary Plan, you decided that actually you wanted those moorings gone from Okahu. There were boats in there that were up 10 years old. <laughs> no one knows how old. Some of those boats uh, had lead-based paint um, on them. Some of them were broken and falling apart. 
Others probably didn't even have owners anymore, or if they did, they forgot all about them. Why was it significant to submit to the unitary plan to have those moorings removed? Um, It was significant because we used a process that in the past had had us lose lose all kahu, and we used a similar council process to reclaim it. Um, so the fight had been for many years, and when the Auckland Unitary Plan um, process came back around, it was, well, here's an opportunity to use a system that in the past has worked against us, um, against itself. Mm. And, um, and it didn't happen overnight. It took many years from from writing the submissions to having the panel hear them to um, deciding in our favour to then enacting it um, and pushing and there was a, there was a fear that it wasn't going to happen um, because nobody wanted to actually pay for um, for the boats to be removed and the and the moorings taken out um, but I think I've used this, you know, uh, Fakatoki before. And I was just, uh, I was a mosquito that was in the air of anybody um, that was eventually going to be annoyed um, by my insistence. Mm. And you say it took many years. It took many years, lots of dedication, lots of professional support as well from lawyers and things, which also equates to costing lots of money. How does that, how, how do you fund something like that? Um, our trust, Ngāti Whātua Trust, put their money where their mouth is and they funded it. There was lots of volunteer hours that went into it, uh, but we had we had a whānau that got behind us and gave us, uh, gave us their support by way of a legal team, by way of a professional team, so our... I know that we're employed in in the environmental area. Um, we're given the permission, I suppose, to dedicate time to to having that done, paying for professionals, consultants to come in, so that we had all of the evidence that we needed to prove that our claims were were valid. Um, so yeah, we we were really lucky to have that support. And when were those moorings removed? The last one was, I think it was June 2019. 19. Yeah. And I, we've talked a little bit about the condition of the boats and so there was obviously a, a health effect mm-hmm. to the moana. But what did it represent when those moorings were gone? What did that represent in that space, visually, before before the removal of the moorings, we knew that the bay, um, you know, it affected all our senses. It didn't smell good. It didn't taste good. It didn't look good. It didn't feel good. And almost instantly when that last mooring was removed, we could feel the health of the bay coming back. And it was... It was less than two weeks later um, that one of our women's teams were out training early in the morning and it was still a little bit chilly then. Um, Flipped the canoe, so they were squealing um, 
and a pot of dolphins popped up. So for us, that was such a tohu that, uh, you know, build it and they will come. Mm. The life was just mm. flooding back into into Okahu Bay. And now, you know, nearly two years on, it feels better, it tastes better, it looks better, it smells better. Mm. And over summertime, seeing so many people swim in the bay um, is really means that we've done the right thing. It's, yeah, it's a taonga that's been returned um, not only to the essence of the moana, but to the people um, of Tamaki and the visitors to Tamaki, that they now have another bay that they can confidently swim in um, and know that it's it's healthier on its way back to being um, in a healthy state. Mm. Okahu Bay has, like many places in Tamaki Makaurau, like many places across Aotearoa, has a history, and the history is not pretty. It's it's very ugly, and when we think right back to uh, Okahu Bay being the wastewater treatment plant, I say that with quote quote marks, um, because Auckland sewage was being pushed out through Okahu Bay, and. I know this because it was then taken out of Okahu Bay and put into our other harbour over here in the Manuko. Um, there has been traumatic events that have happened around Okahu Bay with um, the burning of homes, with the confiscation of land, with the displacement of whanau, with, when I talk about the confiscation of land, with the um, land being dwindled down to... A, half the size of a, a very small urupa. Um, we think of the history of Ngāti Whātua and the history of the Waitemata and Okahu, and it is painful and it is ugly and it is uh, a very in-your-face um, example of the worst parts of colonisation. And we were talking a little bit earlier about how today... It's it's different today. It is thriving today. It is working to a place of restoring Modi today. It is um, positive and and it is productive and it is Maori owned and it is Maori led and it is um, moving into such beautiful histories for those generations to come. My partai is. How has it been to experience, whether it's just through oral corridor, experience the change in that modi or the change in that history? Because while you may not have, um, well, you actually may have, but while you may not have necessarily been directly involved in some of the ugliness of those histories... It is still part of who you are. It is still part of the stories that have been told to you from your parents and your grandparents. And now you're being, you know, now you are active kaitiaki. But what does that feel like to see the difference in your lifetime, to see the change? Because I know, and you've both very clearly said, Ngāti Whātua and the whānau of Ngāti Whātua have never stopped being kaitiaki and have never stopped fighting for the protection of whenua and moana. Um. You know, like Moana said, pre three, we we lived in a little fare that overlooked Okahu, and 
you know, as as babies, as children, the boats were always there, and um, and we we only knew it as that until Dad shared stories about when it wasn't there and um, the abundance of kai and bums in the air with you know n- nannies um, picking pippies. So that was. That was a shared story from him that that at some point, and I'm not even sure when it was, we decided was going to be a reality for us. And so moving from uh, this, and the thing about Okahu, even when the boats were in there, even when it didn't smell great, we loved it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so now with them not in there and seeing so many more people enjoying the space and I'm not saying that more people are are on the water now it's we get to actually see them because they're not obscured by by boats in the bay and um and everybody that comes down especially those who have been away and have come back to see no boats in there the pure joy that they express because there's no boats in there is is huge you know, because we get we get to enjoy that with them and know that I don't believe that we can we can restore the Modi because that's that's the job of Ngātua, mm-hmm. but we can certainly do our bit to make their you know Ngātua's job easier and um, and to apologise for some of the things that we've done. Look, when people used to complain about Okahu and the sewerage and that it was disgusting, you know, their shit went in there too. Mm-hmm. And um, it's okay for those who have got beautiful beaches to go home to, but this is this is our beach to go home to, so... We have to take care of it. We've got to. Mm-hmm. One of the stories that I love is... Um, probably the rebellious ones in the whānau is, um, you know, when the tickle went into the water, um, some of them would swim out, collect it and throw it on the boats. So, you know, in rebellion to the affluent effluent that come off those boats, you know, some of those people didn't care that they flushed straight into the bay. So it was like, well, we'll give it straight back to you. Um but I think in, at some point people must have got tired of of fighting for that and feeling like they weren't making a difference. Um, and so to keep to keep our connection alive, it was for Donna and I um, and our dad was, even if you have a misfortunate-looking child, you still have to love it, and that's what Wokahu was for us. It wasn't the prettiest one in the pack, but we still had to love it and take care of it and do all that we could to, um, yeah, to restore its beauty. Mm. Now, speaking of restoring its beauty, while we've um, while while the health of it is improving in terms of the moorings and we've got more people um, coming to enjoy this space. One of the things I do notice, though, is Okahu comes up a lot on the, you know, you go on the app Safe Beaches to Swim, and it comes up along with many of our beaches across Tamaki Makoto that say not safe to swim, often after a storm. 
I'm assuming, because I'm not 100% clued up, but I'm assuming it's because there are stormwater drains that feed directly into that um, bay, but also you'll be getting lots of runoff from the road that'll be going directly into that bay. What I wanted to ask is, how do we continue to improve on what has already been done? So the moorings are now gone. There are uh, other initiatives, well, I'm assuming there are other initiatives that are happening in Okahu. Can you share a little bit about what they are, but also what we need to be doing to continue this mahi? Because while it looks good, and yes, we are talking about our, our aihe, our dolphins, and our tohora, our whales coming back, um, it doesn't, that that's not the... We're not at the end yet. <laughs> what, what else do we need to be doing? How else can we be changing to improve this space? I think the council definitely had been challenged uh, this year and have been for quite a number of years now to um, to address the stormwater um, outflow. Um, and Okahu isn't the only bay uh, mm. in our rohe that is affected. Um, thankfully, it's... It's much better now than it was five, ten years ago. Um, and as our population in Tamaki increases, we just know that we're putting extra pressures on on those resources that, that could otherwise make a difference. The pump station has improved in the last five, ten years um, in Okahu, um, and it needs to improve even more. Um, but as you said as well, the runoff from the road, you know, the brake fluid um, that uh, goes straight into the into the water has always affected Okahu. Uh, the levels of uh, metal and and the likes in in the bays um, are quite significant. Um, so there's definitely room for improvement in those kinds of areas. Uh, Ngāti Whātua were working closely with um, Auckland Transport to address some of those issues and continue to work with council um, specifically around uh, the effects from Tāmaki Drive. Mm. I think also like, there's, you know, there's some little, little projects that are happening too on the side that um, there isn't visibility over... Um, but they make a difference, you know, collectively they make a difference. Um, there's an organisation that's down at the Okahu Landing and um, that manages the haul out um, and they're blue flagged. So they are, you know, um, they are an environment, well, they're an organisation that have a safe environment for boats to come up and be cleaned and be maintained that doesn't have a runoff in, into the bay. And that, you know, that organisation led by uh, a guy called Scott Fickling is, you know, they're, they're passionate about Okahu as well. They've been incredibly supportive of, of Orake Water Sports and our our wanting to protect uh, and preserve Okahu. Then you've got the Orake Marina, and marinas often come, you know, under um, scrutiny for what what they do. But as an organisation, they too have been really supportive and want to give back to Okahu. So there's a favourite whakatauki of mine that was Martin Luther King Jr.'s, if I cannot do great things, I'll do small things in a great way. And so everybody doing their small little bit can lead to great outcomes. And 
Um, they might not be the big flashy projects and they might not have all of the money behind them, um, but they're certainly doing their bit to contribute. Mm. Let's talk about Kai. <laughs> Because we like talking about Kai. <laughs> um, Kai in the Moana. Uh, I've had this conversation with you in the past, Moana, about Kinabarans mm. and how Kinabarans are taking over uh, in the Hauraki Gulf. I, I want to ask a little bit about your um, knowledge that has been passed on to you from your whānau around what kai you used to be able to get from the Waitemata and how that's changed now. The abundance definitely is not what it used to be. Um, and even as young young kids um, walking home from school, and I mean, we left Orake when we were eight years old, so today it would probably be called child neglect. But anyway, we'd walk via Okahu Bay, pick a few pippies, cook them on the open fire down at the beach before heading home. Um, I would say that it's been at least 40 years since they've been able to do that. Um, been out on our surfboards with Dad and our uncles um, sparing flounder, um, you know, in the shallows of the bay. Um, Dad always spoke about being able to walk along the pylons and, and the sea would be red, that there would be so many snapper there. Um, you'd be lucky to get your haul if you were out there now. It's it's just not there. But... Um, Hopefully the muscle restoration projects that we've been undertaking now since we were involved since 2007 and there have been two, two muscle um, projects, three, three. Um, and one, one in the pipeline now. Um, so we are, we are seeing some fish return and with the removal of the moorings, um, that's definitely um, aided that. But the abundance is not is not what it used to be. Can you tell me a little bit about these muscle restoration projects? Mm. Um, Pre-2007, Rochelle Kahui McConnell, in conversation with Ngāri Mu Blair, um, wanted to, to lay some muscle reefs there to regenerate the health um, in the bay or to filter the, the paru in the bay. Um, and so Rochelle came to me in about 2007 and I directed her to Dad um, and the two become like peas in a pod and we're just really intent on getting that project underway. Um, Brendan Dumfrey from Auckland University came on board about 2012-2013 and then the project rolled out in 2014, the first muscle drop. Um, so Orake Water Sports supported that, put the muscles out there. It was deemed a failure because things didn't happen straight away. Um, but less than four years later, we had one of the old kayakers come running in off off the water saying, you know, one of your dad's, your dad's legacy lives on, the muscles are growing. Um, and, then, and then we were also looking at other ways when we were told that it was a failure, other ways. And so Rochelle worked with our kairaranga from Orake Marae to plait huge tauda that now hang off the end of Okahu Wharf and they were seeded with, uh, with mussels and they um, 
I would say that they're deemed quite successful, so successful that the starfish really love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and from those different projects, realised that on a on a larger scale, they'd have um, bigger impact. And so we're underway at the moment to um, to roll that that next phase of the project. Wow. Well, do you know what material they use to plant? Harakiki. Because I recently had a corridor with. Uh, Kura Paul Burke, who um, has been helping to do muscle restoration down in Fakatane, and they use tea coca, the leaves, the dry leaves of the cabbage tree, um, and fatu those, weave those together and put them down. So it's, yeah, beautiful to see the connection between A, using uh, material that comes from our environment, and B, using utilising that matauranga Māori the Māori knowledge to combine that with Western science and help to create good outcomes. With the muscle restoration, is that, I mean, how does that continue and and help other species to thrive? By filtering the water, cleaning Mm. the water. So I think, you know, and also looking at the muscle restoration work, knowing that it is in an isolation, so that there has to be a wider approach to um, improving um, and regenerating the health of the moana. So the work that's been done on the Kinnabarans at the moment is quite controversial. Um, and I think a lot of that is really around the language that is used. Um, we talk about um, customary take and and our rights as Māori for customary take. But when I when I dived into that, it was really around understanding what the respons- what responsibilities came with that. And I think what responsibilities come with Kaitiakitanga. So we're talking about, you know, what's our quota? Mm-hmm. Um, it more is what is it that we need to do to maintain the balance? That mm-hmm. should be, and um, and that's how I approach the customary take. And so what that then means is we need to take more responsibility with regards to the matauranga that's been handed down to us, uh, when best to fish, when best not to fish, and what species to fish and when to fish them. Um, we're talking about, you know, 50, you can take 50 kina, if you take 50 kina from a kina baron, you're probably, it's not even a drop in the ocean um, because the kina have already depleted the nutrients that are required for a healthy ecosystem under the water. Um, so it really is about how we can be more mindful of what is needed to create that healthy environment under the water. Um, if you take a kina from an area that has living, thriving, beautiful kelp, it's going to be very different than the kinna that you take from a kinna baron. And so we're trying to recreate um, the forest that the kinna thrive on. But in order to do that, we have to bring balance back to what fish, what predator fish are there that are going to keep the numbers of kinna down to a manageable level um, to get that balance back. Mm. I love that fakaro that you just have around quotas mm. because it's a very indigenous way of thinking to not think of a quota as, well, you can only take 50 every single time, but actually it's how do we 
look at what's there. And today you need to take 100, <laughs> but tomorrow from that or here, you might only be able to take 10. Mm. And that really quotas, and again, I'm using my quote mark mm. <laughs> fingers, um, quotas are, are not in tune with our environment whatsoever mm. and don't help us to maintain or well, restore and then maintain balance because balance is key. Balance is the key. And when we're looking at all of our Indigenous systems and our Indigenous way of thinking and being, it is all around how do we maintain that delicate balance. And if for some reason there are not enough crayfish in this particular area, then there is no quota for crayfish. It is you don't touch that until it restores. And so then for the next two years, you should be eating kina. <laughs> and then we go from there. So I, I really like that whakaro, that that thinking. And I think it should be something we explore even further. How do we push um, Indigenous thinking and values into the fisheries system so that it isn't just a stock standard quota system per person in every area, but it actually is individualised to particular little hair, what they have, what's thriving, what's not thriving, and how do our local people, local community, help inform what those quotas are at any given time that can consistently change? Because actually that's what we need. I don't know if I should have that opinion. <laughs> well, for me, it's around, you know, shifting the attitude from what can I take to what do I need to leave? And, you know, with the, with the Kinnabarans, for, for example, you know, take them. They need to be taken. But for those areas where it's been depleted, so if, if we switched it around and somebody went down and instead of how much can I take, the, the whakaro was what do I need to leave, there'd just be a, there'd be a different approach to it. The same with fishing. You know, every time, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but every time I'd see a photo of somebody holding up a tamure, a massive big snapper, and really the pride on their face for having taken this this big, huge fish, where is actually that's the one that should have been left behind. And instead of saying the minimum weight uh, the minimum size snapper that you can take is this to uh, you need to take the snapper that are between this size and this size. Leave the babies, you know, leave the komatua, just take the ones in between. And so there's a, a huge amount of education that needs to happen to make individuals aware of what they're doing every time they're thinking about me and what can I have versus the environment and what do I need to leave behind. And that reminds me of a whakaro that you both share that I consistently think about when I'm thinking about different things that I'm doing around the world, um, around Aotearoa because we're not going to go anywhere, um, <laughs> consistently doing as to why are you doing that thing. And it's something you both talk about, which is eco over ego. And looking after, you know, what is best for eco in terms of our environment or our collective or our community over ego? What is it that you individually are driving to want? And it's something that I know about you both and just wanted to 
contribute that to the conversation because I think that's also another very valid whakaro that we need to take away from this corridor that it's not just about, you know, what are we leaving? It's also about why are we doing this and ensuring that eco is before ego. Uh, Moana, I'm about to I'm about to see you cringe. <laughs> However, this is a very important part of the conversation. You've recently been awarded and, and become a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. And I want to highlight and acknowledge you for that because a lot of the reason why you have been uh, given this this tohu um, is because of your contribution to the health and well-being of the moana, of te waitemata, of ōkahu. And the reason why I say you're going to cringe is because I know you don't, you like eco over ego and you don't like to be singled out uh, for your achievements. However, it is very important that we do single you out for your achievements and acknowledge your MNZM, which I had to look at before I read it because I always get the letters mixed up. I actually want to ask Donna, what does it mean to you to see Moana recognised at this level for this mahi? And what does that represent? Um, it, it represents uh, our whakatauki from the kura that we went to, uh, Ngātapuai College, um, and that's ina te mahi he rangatira. So she, you know, um, by deeds a chief is known. So she's been recognised for for the mahi that she has done and and deserves. And what does that represent on a wider scale when you have a wahine Māori who has worked voluntarily for so many years uh, as a kaitiaki? And I, when I say work, I don't mean work. <laughs> who lives and breathes as a kaitiaki? What does that mean? Uh, on a bigger scale for Ōkahu, for your whānau and for the legacy that you both continue? I guess we live in a society that, you know, recognises, um, colonises tohu um, and uh, let's just say there was consideration for not accepting this tohu but it is something that... Um, could benefit the kopapa even further, that it could be leveraged off, that we could have uh, Ōkahu, the Waitemata, you know, uh, Hauraki Golf um, benefit by by her having this. Mm. It becomes something of a tool to use to continue and forward the kopapa. And one, I want to ask you, what does it mean to you? I think, you know, in the wise words of someone that I spoke to, um, it's not mine alone. There are many that contributed and enabled me to do the mahi that I do. I'm so honoured and grateful to so many people for sharing their journey and their knowledge with me that has um, enabled me to grow in the space um, from someone that just loved going to the beach 
to someone that um, knows now that I can make a valuable contribution. Um, I've been so fortunate to work alongside some really great, great people um, in the marine space and those equally committed to making a difference in whichever way that they can. And from the whanau on Otata to, you know, Rochelle Constantine out on, on boats uh, watching whales, um, to the many whanau members that, that want to, in their little way, make a, a valuable contribution. And, and if we all just do a little bit, that will go a long way to improving the health mm-hmm. of our environment, the whenua and the moana. Last year I was entrusted with a team of young people uh, from Parakuriki Tamaki that are out there doing some amazing stuff and they're, they're living the legacy of their mum uh, who passed last year. So acknowledging... Um, all the great work that has been done, I think we need to do that better um, so that people feel valued. I think when people feel valued, they will do more. Um, and so I I receive this, this tohu, um, knowing that the path was set for me many years ago. I did... Um, Eva Rickard say, somewhere in my past is my destiny. Mm-hmm. And um, and I hope that we just, you know, between us all, we continue this path moving forward and it be a path that our tamariki, our mokapuna, um, are keen to walk and is not a struggle for them, but a clear pathway forward that they know that they can make a difference. Yeah. Uh, speaking of our tamariki and our mukupuna, what you both do in and around the Waitemata and Okahu is for them. And I think it's what we all do. We, all of us Māori Pākehā, like uh, those who work to restore our environment, to regenerate our environment. It's not for us because we won't benefit from it in the now. Our tamariki and our mukapuna will benefit from it in the future. And from an Indigenous perspective, we think about those seven generations in front of us. And so I want to ask you both, what do you want for those next seven generations in relation to the Hauraki Gulf? What, what's your hope for this particular body of water? and all that lives within it, underneath it, around it, on top of it, uh, what do you want to see for those generations and, and for its future? I think as sucky as this COVID thing is, um, everybody has experienced that we can regenerate things. You know, I think anybody that is going through this this time now, we know that by letting nature heal, um, we can see such a huge difference. Um, so it's, it doesn't take rocket science. Mm. It just takes letting the balance be restored. 
Um, so I'd love for our, uh, to see the abundance back. I'd love for there to be more um, balance and uh, for us to experience the Modi, real strong Modi uh, in our moana, on our whenua. Um, that's what I'd love to see for the future. What about you? Um, actually, I was watching Travel Guides New Zealand last night. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want to go to Pai. Oh, I want to go up to, you know, Northland. I want to go out to Poor Nights um, and experience swimming with turtles in New Zealand. Mm. It's something that I've experienced, you know, overseas um, in Hawaii and, and Rarotonga and Tahiti, but I've never experienced here. So my my dream is that our waters are restored to to a state where where those where turtles will want to come to, and we don't have to go out of Tamaki to experience that. That we can stay here. There's one thing that I've really appreciated, um, at, you know, in this this crazy time of this pandemic is appreciating what we have here in Tamaki Makoto, that we don't have to go outside of this region to experience the beauty of our whenua and the moana. Mm. The Hauraki Gulf Marine Park is an extensive area. You know, there's so, mm. there's so much to see in that huge mm. body of water um, and a huge population also that could make a difference if they wanted to. Mm. With education and with the willingness of the people, we will restore the balance that is needed. Mm. Speaking about balance, recently Waiheke has had a rahui put around the motu. Um, I'm interested to know is Arahui something that you would consider for Okahu Bay? Is it something we need to consider for the whole Hauraki Gulf Marine Park? What do you think? We could take the advice, and I would love it if we did, of the scientists and 30% marine protected areas, um, or we could take a staggered approach, and I think that's what the rahui around Waiheke is. It's an introduction and education into what difference we could make if we protected an area. Um, there are many that would say no take, 100% no take, just leave it all alone. Um, I think the rahui around Waiheke is... Um, as a, as a nice introduction into what it is that we can be doing and the steps that we could be taking. The rahui around Waiheke is protecting four species. Um, I know that there are many that would like to take that even further and uh, limit the the take of fish, but at this at the moment it's paua, uh, scallops, mussels and uh, crayfish. Um, and there and there are many people that would like the um, no take on fish, and that that's not what's so at the moment. I think rahui is um, something that people are becoming more aware of and um, and accepting of. 
um, and educating people on the difference of a marine reserve area as a marine, as opposed to a marine protected area, and that Ahui comes into the marine protected area space, um, and. And hopefully with this awareness raising, people will be more accepting of that. Um, there, there was a little school that I worked with up at Long Bay a couple of years ago and they wanted to extend the marine reserve area there to um, encompass a greater area. And I've recently been contacted by um, some others south of that that are wanting to extend uh, the reserve right down to, to their area. So I think people are realising that they need to, to make big, bold uh, decisions and efforts to protect the marine space. Okahu would love, would love, love, love Arahui Place. Um, around Okahu and around around the bays, um, and that would see the regeneration of health in the bay um, happen a lot quicker. Um, so yeah, definitely not off the table. Could you see that happening? Of course, anything's possible. Why not? What what do individuals need to think about if so? Arahu is one thing, but there's also individual responsibility and individual choice. And so what could individuals be thinking about now while Arahu is being worked on in the background? I think it comes back to each individual taking responsibility for the for the impact. So when we fly, we know that we have there's a carbon footprint, right? Because there's been years and years of educating people on, on what our our trip to Australia, the islands, America, Europe. You know, we know that the further we go, the greater the carbon um, footprint that we leave. What we're not educated on is what what footprint we're leaving. And, and let's just say tamaki. Every time we go out and we take something from the ocean or every time we put a boat on the ocean that is, that's burning fuel and then we go and remove something. So for that that we take, what are we giving back? Um, and if we just switch it around so that we give more than we take, then we have to be left better off. I guess that's... It seems simple, but we're human beings and we're selfish. And that's not a lie. I think I, I, I completely agree with you both. And I think lots of people um, individually also don't appreciate or understand the significance of their individual choice and think, but I'm only one person. And if, you know, I might be doing this, but there's a big commercial operation over there who's doing this thing. I... I'm just going to carry on doing my thing because it's less impactful than that one over there, you know, for example. Um, but what we don't understand is that if each of us collectively made individual choices better, then we would be creating much better impact um, and, and leaving a much better footprint on our moana. Is there anything else either of you would like to add on our kōrero? I think it is around acknowledging all the mahi that, that people do in the background um, 
to support the health of our environment. Um, and there are many. There are many that are committed to to improving the health. Um, so I'd really love that we take the time out to acknowledge those those individuals, those community groups, um, mainly that do it for nothing, that do it because they love it. Mm. In that, while we talk about and continue to think about how we might recognise other individuals, while I have the two of you sitting in front of me here today, I want to acknowledge you both as individuals uh, for the contribution that you have made to the moana. Um, but I also want to acknowledge the contribution your father made. And while he isn't physically sitting here in front of me, I'm pretty sure that he's sitting in this corridor and he uh, is someone that I knew and someone that I had the privilege in learning from and do want to acknowledge the contribution that he made to the Waitemata, to Okahu Bay, um, and his influence that he had here on the Manukau as well. And I see... When I think of people like your dad and what he did for his entire lifetime, often unrecognised, uh, unpaid, because that's what we do, um, I do want to take this moment to acknowledge him because you are both directly connected to that mahi. Uh, continue the legacy of the mahi that he and those who went before him um, continue to do. And I know that both of your sons are continuing that too in, uh, in their engagements, entanglements mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with the moana um, through waka, through kaitiakitanga. And so just to acknowledge um, them as well. So tēnā kōrua, thank you for having the kōrero today. Uh, we have a number of podcasts that will be out around the uh, in this Hauraki Golf Corridor podcast series. Um, so do tune in and listen to some of the other amazing people that we get to Corridor with and the contribution that they have made to the Hauraki Golf. Kia ora. <laughs>